Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday the 21st of September. It's Fed Day and we have news and analysis on the FOMC's monetary policy decision. That's coming up. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making this podcast one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, the Federal Reserve left monetary policy on hold at its meeting yesterday, leaving the target for the federal funds rate unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. But officials paved the way for another rate hike by the end of the year. And then two rate cuts in 2024. For next year, it projected 50 basis points of cuts to 5.1%, highlighting previous warnings that borrowing costs will remain higher for longer. China kept its benchmark loan rates unchanged for September. The People's Bank of China left its one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged at 3.45% and 4.2% respectively. The one-year rate is the peg for most household and corporate loans in China, while the five-year rate is linked to mortgages. The move was expected after the PBOC kept its medium-term policy rate steady last Friday. And former People's Bank of China Governor Yi Gang said China needs to appropriately ramp up support to achieve the government's economic growth target of about 5% this year. Mr Yi, who was PPOC Governor until earlier this year, said that the central bank could do more to support the property sector. He said that the rapid expansion of lending to the technology and innovative industries hasn't been able to fully compensate for the slowdown in real estate loans this year. Slowing food prices helped drive a surprise fall in UK inflation in August, with the cost of living now at its lowest level in a year and a half. Consumer price inflation in the UK eased to 6.7% in August from 6.8% in the previous month, below economists' expectations of 7%. Food inflation slowed to a 12-month low of 13.6% year-on-year in August, down from 14.8% in July. Traders re-evaluated their expectations of rate hikes by the Bank of England following the data. Swaps markets are now evenly split on the prospect of a 25 basis point increase to 5.5% later today, down from a probability of 80% for a rise before the inflation figures were published. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Fru McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safeboat Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks retreated on Wednesday after the Federal Reserve said it would leave interest rates unchanged but indicated another hike before the end of the year. All three major indices closed at their session lows. The S&P 500 dropped 0.9% to 4,402. The Dow lost 77 points or 0.2% to 34,441. The Nasdaq Composite slid 1.5% to 13,469. The Tech Heavy Index was dragged lower by a drop of 2.4% in Microsoft and roughly 3% declines in NVIDIA and Google Parent Alphabet. And NVIDIA is now down more than 14% month to date. 
US Treasury yields rose Tuesday after a hawkish FOMC increased selling pressure on government bonds. The yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury hit a 16-year high, rising three basis points to 4.4%. And the yield on the more policy-sensitive two-year Treasury was up eight basis points to 5.17%. That's its highest level since 2006. Brent crude oil shed 0.8% to $93.54 a barrel on Wednesday. The dollar paired its pre-fed losses with hawkish dot plots sending the US dollar index higher, rising from lows of 104.66 to 105.34. The Japanese yen weakened past 148 per dollar, that's the lowest since early November, as the divergence between monetary policy in the US and Japan became more pronounced. It was 0.2% lower at 148.2 Japanese yen per dollar. The offshore yuan was subdued around 7.3 per dollar as China's central bank left its one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged. Hong Kong stocks approached the lowest level in a month. The Hang Seng Index dropped 112 points or 0.6% to 17,886. And the latest fall takes the decline in the city's benchmark index so far in 2023 to 9.6%, making it the worst performer out of 92 equity indices around the world tracked by Bloomberg. The tech index slumped 1.6%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was also in negative territory, falling half a percent to 3,109. And futures markets are pointing to further declines for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Looks like it's going to slide about 80 points. That's half a percent. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us on Fed Day, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. How exciting, Andrew. Oh, unbelievably, actually. I'm, I'm trembling with the, well, never mind. I won't call the ex- expectations or excitement. Anyway. <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing your views in a moment, as also the views from Alex Fu McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. Morning, Alex. Good morning, Peter. Well, let's go straight to the Fed. The US Federal Reserve left monetary policy on hold at its September meeting yesterday, leaving the target for the federal funds rate unchanged at five and a quarter percent to five and a half percent. That was a unanimous decision of the FOMC. But officials paved the way for another rate hike by the year end and two rate cuts in 2024. The summary of economic projections, which is known as the dot plot, showed policymakers forecasting a terminal rate of five and a half to five and and three quarter percent, and then penciling in fewer interest rate cuts for 2024 and 2025. For next year, it projected 50 basis points of cuts to 5.1 percent, and highlighted previous warnings that borrowing costs will remain higher for longer. Policymakers said that recent indicators suggest that economic activity has been expanding at a solid pace. Job gains have slowed in recent months but remain strong and the unemployment rate has remained low and inflation remains elevated, the Fed said in its post-meeting statements. So there we go, Andrew. Things unchanged. Um, You're not surprised that uh, the Fed has been so forceful in signalling another rate hike because you've been saying on this programme many times rates are going to go up um, further from here. But yet the market did seem to be a little bit surprised that uh, uh, Jerome Powell was so decisive about this. Well, you know, surprised or not, I, I, I feel it's Look, they have a they have a job to do. Okay, they have to bring inflation down, and uh, they were doing it by increasing or putting interest rates up and not cutting them. 
the other point is is what the markets are doing about it and the answer is is very little because there is nothing to be done you know i cannot stand in front of my clients and try to pretend that i'm adding value by simply saying the fed will increase interest rates if inflation seems to be unstably going up and then they are not going to cut interest rates anytime soon till inflation is stable oh mm. really and excuse me andrew <laughs> how much you're starting up for that I mean, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, I, I. I. I feel. I feel very frustrated, and that's why I prefer to stick to things that are completely unrelated to interest rates. You know, if, if you want some exciting news, uh, then uh, then I've got them, and they have nothing to do with whether the Fed, Bank of England, or European Central Bank are going to increase interest rates in the near future. Yeah, in all probability, they will. Not the Bank of England, so they say. Mm. Okay, well, we're going to get on to the Bank of England. We're going to get on to China shortly because uh, interest rates decisions there as well coming up or have uh, have been made. But Alex, let me get your thoughts first of all on uh, the Fed. Things are unchanged, but the dot plots are moving up, aren't they? Yeah, that, I mean, that's what was slightly hawkish and uh, the slightly, you know, a slight surprise, you could say, was that the, the dot plot suggested a... Uh, uh, a year-end interest rate of 5.1% end of next year as opposed to 4.625% was what it was at uh, when they last uh, met. So they're now indicating that there will be uh, maybe one fewer cut next year than expected and one more cut this year. I think the Fed has got to be pretty happy generally with how things are going. I mean, the U.S. economy is still growing. It's avoided recession, which is what everyone was sort of expecting at the start of this year, uh, and inflation's coming down. So they are doing their job. Inflation has been a tricky beast to tame uh, almost everywhere, um, but they seem to be getting on top of it, and I think that's going to give them a lot of encouragement. And they also increased their, their forecast for U.S. GDP to 2.1% mm. this year, which was up from uh, 1% before. Um, and expecting 1.5% growth next year, up from 1.1%. So that shows that they're optimistic about U.S. economic prospects, I think. So we've got to remember the Fed's only going to raise rates um, if the economy uh, is strong enough, they believe, for them to do that. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think inflation coming under control would be you know, the, the number one issue that they would like to see uh, happen. Mm -hmm. they, they seem to be catching up with their own forecasts because they they almost had to raise the dot plots, didn't they, to say that the rates were going to be higher by the end of the year because that's, in effect, what they've been saying in their various communications they've been doing with the media. So this is really only a catch-up uh, with themselves. Yeah, I mean, they do like to tip their hand as much as possible, um, it seems, uh, which uh, Ueda in, in Japan is sort of starting to do as, as well. They, I think they like to try to give as much guidance as they can without obviously telling markets exactly what they're going to do. So it's things like the dot plot that the stocks are reacting to um, when we've had, you know, a little bit of sell on the news um, happening yesterday. Uh, and now they'll start looking at, you know, the, the rumors um, for what, what's going to come. Mm. Andrew, I'm wondering if this is sort of a bit of a communications exercise because it's easier, isn't it, for the Fed to say we're going to hike one more time and then not do it rather than do the opposite and say we're not going to have any increases and then surprise everyone uh, by doing yeah. it. So th there seems to be some communication uh, sort of uh, p policy here. Yeah, I don't. I, I completely agree with you. And also, I, I remain very vindictive because I remember about a month and a half ago, Powell said, I just can't see year 25 
with inflation really very stable at 3%. Year 25. And I thought, oh, great. That means for year 24, nothing is going to happen. Well, apparently, they're even planning for two cuts. But I'm not holding my breath. Of course. Do you think you know, we'll like, get that? I'm, I'm wondering if we'll oh, really absolutely, get that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll find it in my Bloomberg and I will stick it with big capital letters somewhere. I don't know if it matters. You know what Keynes said when he was asked if things change, what he does? He says, I changed my mind. Well, mm. so did Powell. I mean, it's perfectly all right. It's stupid to say just because he said that, that he's going to keep to that. Mm. Simple. Do you, do you think, Alex, the, um, the, the Fed is maybe um, risking raising rates uh, too, much here, too much here and sending the economy into, into recession? It, it's still sticking with this, uh, this notion that you know, rates have got to go up um, further, but we are getting signs of easing inflation, aren't we, in a less overheated sort of labour market? Yeah, that, that's the risk with um, Fed central bank policy and also you know, with government policies in general that... Um, uh, you know, you leave uh, punishing measures in place for too long and it ends up hurting long term. And I think we are seeing that in China where they've really damaged the property market and it's going to take a lot to, to turn that around, uh, especially now that a lot of consumer pessimism has sunk in. Um, so, yes, that's the risk that the Fed keeps rates high for too long um, and does end up damaging the economy. Um, but that just simply hasn't happened so far. So actually, I think, you know, they're, they're pulling off, you know, the, the Goldilocks um, uh, reality that, that everyone was, was talking about, you know, when we sort of started, um, started the year, people were wondering if they could avert recession in the U.S. And so far, they've been very successful and, and still looking at, you know, 2% growth next year is very solid, really. Um, mm. They're doing much better than Europe and then, um, you know, parts of Asia are still growing pretty decently, but China definitely has big challenges. So I think the US looks pretty sunny by comparison. Andrew, every meeting this year, one of two things have happened. Either the Fed has raised rates or it's done a hawkish hold in which it's not raised rates, but then said they're still going to go up uh, and, and go up further. Do you think we're going to get to the position soon where the Fed will say we've reached the end um, and, and, you know, there's no need for rates to go any further? And what, what would need to happen for, for them to say that? Well, I'll take something out of their own, uh, their own book. Actually, their own book, what it is more or less received uh, wisdom, and that is, Increases in interest rates or increases in tightening uh, monetary policy may take up to six months before they begin to really, really bite and operate. Mm. So what I'm looking is is the uh, inflation rate. Remember, they haven't changed the 2%. Now 3 has slipped in very, very quietly, and uh, it's going to become uh, the new 2. Okay, so I don't think they're going to do anything until and when the inflation rate goes down to three and below, and then stays there for half a year. So, you know, I'm not holding my, my breath that they're going to cut interest rates, although they say that for next year anytime soon, unless they have changed their own understanding of where the inflation is going and how much it's going to stabilize. I haven't heard them yet say that at that space, at that race, at that pace by which inflation is moving then this is likely to happen because I think that will be nailing uh, their flag too much on on a specific number and on a specific 
time period. That's so my my impression. You know, I say I I'm going away fishing for the next six months. Mm. And I think I think you're dead right, uh, Peter. That it's easier for Powell and the Fed to be hawkish and sound hawkish than to sound dovish and to sort of give uh, over encouragement and then pull the rug out from under, especially the stock market. So. Um, I think it's it's a lot easier for him to keep saying, well, we're going to have to raise rates more. We're going to have to keep them high for longer. And you're right. Yeah. Then if they if they do tweak policy in a sort of market favorable way later, no one's going to really complain. But they would complain if they suddenly hiked rates and they hadn't and they'd sort of been indicating that they weren't going to do that. Mm. Well, the, the big reaction in the markets has come in the bond markets, although stocks were off. Um, Treasury yields have risen to multi-year highs. The yield on the benchmark 10-year is at a 16-year high of 4.40%, uh, and that's taken yields now to their highest level since November 2007. What is interesting here, Andrew, is the 10-year note yield now has risen from an all-time low of 0.3% to 4.4% <laughs> in just three years. So that's basically over 400 basis points in 36 months, which is fueled by the Fed, of course, and all this debt issuance um, by the by the US Treasury. But it seems to me that this is a significant, significant jump in long-term yields, 10-year yields, that is going to have an impact on the, on the economy and on consumer spending and on mortgages, a whole range of implications for this that surely we can't just ignore. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll answer an even more casually sophisticated way to that, and that is that the yield curve, the, you know, the difference between the two and tens, is still uh, very much inverted. In other words, the short term are higher than the long term. Uh, apparently, it has flattened a little bit, but it's still there. Mm. So if I was the man from Mars that was told, look at the yield curve, look at the yield curve, I would say I've seen here an inverted yield curve for quite a long time. It doesn't have any signs from this from flattening to to steepening okay so yeah monetary policy stays 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 tight and here is where the fed doesn't have any direct influence on the yield curve it's not like japan that they pegged it on the lower side and therefore they buy and sell in the market as necessary the fed here simply moves the fed funds and it is the market who's telling us that mm. it ain't gonna change anytime soon in other words, you suddenly have seen the yield curve steepening. I would say, oh boy, you know, they're, they're going off to the races very, very quickly. Ignoring completely the Fed and ignoring the famous dictum, don't fight the Fed. Don't mm. fight the Fed. So the yield curve tells me that they're not fighting the Fed. Alex, it seems one big consequence of this is going to be the housing market. It's really going to knock activity on, in the housing market on the head because most people in the US have mortgages um, below 3% because they finance them, uh, refinance them at very low rates over the past few years. You're not going to sell your house now, are you? And then have to pay a mortgage way, way above uh, that, that rate. Yes, I mean, mortgages, interest rates definitely you know feeds straight into mortgages and that does affect the property market considerably there's some interesting figures that, that were um, just out showing that home construction is at its lowest level since june 2020 so sort of since the since uh, a period when we were not really feeling the effects of covid in the us um and uh, that i think that's directly because of high interest rates but building permits are now at their highest in in the year, highest rate in the year. So I think you're seeing construction companies starting to plan ahead for these rate cuts next year, 
and starting activity now in order to have the housing stock to sell next year. So, um, yeah, the, as Andrew said, you know, normally it takes six months for a, for a rate hike to feed through. So, you know, we can think that if they rate before uh, raised rates in November, let's say, or before the end of the year, that by the middle of next year would be when people are feeling the effects of, a, of their higher mortgages the most and that the pressure should ease, you know, from mid-year next year towards the end, perhaps with, with housing and property stocks uh, uh, running ahead of that activity. But it certainly looks like U.S. construction companies are sort of looking ahead at this information as well mm. and, and planning uh, accordingly. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to China. Another central bank unchanged. The People's Bank of China left its one-year and five-year loan prime rates unchanged at 3.45% and 4.2% respectively. The one-year rate is the peg for most household and corporate loans. The five-year rate is linked to mortgages. It was expected because the PBOC kept its medium-term policy rate steady on Friday, and those two um, are linked. Andrew, unchanged is the word of the day here. Um, But what do you make of uh, what the PBOC is doing? Well, I'll, I'll start again with the with the obvious. I said c- clearly. I mean, I'm in the race for the Nobel Prize winner in economics for this year. But I believe by pointing out, as the Brits would have said, the bleeding obvious, and that is, if in China you have inflation which is well below one percent, okay, and uh, as it has been running for several months now, it has been bobbing uh, even below the one percent level, down to zero point something. Then, of course, you cannot cut interest rates by 25 basis points. And the time they cut, they cut it by about five basis points. So they have very limited space uh, to play with big numbers. And of course, they are staring at that. And possibly they don't mind having real real interest rates uh, stabilized and relatively high. If you subtract one from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, 3%, you end up with a 2% real interest rates which is still well below the rate at which the economy is, is growing. So they will say, okay, we have a tight monetary policy, but not too tight. Okay, so that explains why they are not touching interest rates. At least it explains it for me. And uh, they, are, they have always been hugely reluctant to play on the interest rates. They much prefer cutting, uh, as they just did, reserve requirements, in other words, increasing the liquidity of the bank or injecting liquidity uh through through purchases in the market as they also did uh, did did yesterday rather than doing the fed okay hey we are cutting or no we don't cut it never mind i mean i just can't see the chinese having a dot chart i mean i would be rolling on the ground if i see them doing that. <laughs> come on you know, what these guys are thinking they're actually telling us where they're going to be next year okay. no and I'm, I'm not being facetious at all at least they're, they're very very consistent so okay. It would be a good idea to have a Chinese. It might be wrong, okay, but they're very consistent. Yeah, but uh, I suppose. I mean, from what you're saying, I mean, real uh, monetary policy in China and the Fed are about equally restrictive, aren't they? They've both got real rates of about two percent. Yeah, except of course, the funny thing is the Chinese have been cutting interest rates and the Fed has been increasing. So again, the man from Mars looking at the four biggest economies in the world, they will say two of them are on tight monetary policy, as European Union and the Fed, and the other two, Japan and, uh, and, uh, and, and China, are actually cutting interest rates. Or uh, Jap- Japan said it's zero and it stays zero. So please go away now. All right. It's a huge contradiction in terms of global markets. Okay. The two biggest, the two of the biggest, biggest guys 
okay, have got a completely different monetary policy to that of the other two big guys. I love that. So, so much, so much for coordination and so much for the global economists in some way acting in tandem. No, they don't. Alex, what's your assessment of the PBOC and what it's doing here? Well, I think the issue in China is that um, it isn't really, you know, like it is the Fed in the US. It isn't uh, interest rates in the central bank that's really driving, you know, the animal spirits and the and the consumer sentiment. I think it's these measures to bring um, the property market into check and to cut out over leverage in the property market um, that have lasted too long there and they've definitely left you know those red lines in place for too long and, and it's had a really damaging effect and as a result you know consumers and businesses aren't confident to purchase no one's buying homes because they're not sure which developer is going to collapse next um, these things all have a very negative effect on the economy uh, you know with the property market accounting for somewhere between like either a quarter and one third of the whole economy in China, depending on which numbers you you look at. But I mean, uh, I just heard a stat that China's uh, introduced 200 different measures recently to sort of try to tweak the economy. Uh, We never never get any details on those measures, though, do we? They're they're sort of raised as headlines, but we never hear anything more about them. That's right. They, they like to be very top line. We've got new 32 point plan to turn the economy around, you know, sort of trying to order the economy to turn around and it doesn't seem to be working. So I think it's, you know, regulatory uncertainty uh, also creates a lot of problems um, for businesses, I think, really there. Mm. You know, you're not sure if you can <clears throat> expand in China if you're a multinational, if the regulations in your sector keep changing and, you know, exports in one industry are banned or you know covertly banned and then you know there's another unofficial policy on whether you can get a a visa to travel and you know all these different things keep keep being changed all the time so i think it's very difficult at at the moment um for businesses to operate uh, confidently and and i think consumers really totally lack confidence Andrew, I wanted to raise what uh, Yi Gang said uh, yesterday. He's the former People's Bank of China governor, of course, until the beginning of this year. He he said China needs to appropriately ramp up support to achieve the government's economic growth target of about 5%. He recommended appropriately increasing macroeconomic policies to support the expansion of domestic demand and giving full play, he says, to the use of structural monetary policy to support the housing sector. And he said the rapid expansion of lending to the technology and innovation of industries hasn't been able to fully compensate for the slowdown in real estate loans this year. Now, I can't imagine he would have said that without official sanction and uh, official approval. So I don't know what quite what you make of this. Is he criticising the PBOC here for not doing enough? Or is he saying that, you know, there is more to come, that the PBOC is going to step in and take more um, take more action? No, I, I read it in a, in a uh, well, I would say a very different way, but I read it in a different way. Because unfortunately, it supports what I've been saying uh, through clenched teeth. And that is whether they like it or not, they will need to use fiscal policy. They're going to increase their fiscal deficit in order to support in one way or another the property sector. Okay, in other words, and they can afford to do it. So he, he's not saying that. Okay, but they, so that's because, missing, isn't it? He doesn't say anything about fiscal policy there. Similar. Well, he, he, he doesn't say that because fiscal policy is another big uh, uh, non-caution no-no. 
in uh, in in Chinese terms. In other words, you'd leave the fiscal the fiscal balance uh, unchanged. But I just cannot see how they are going to resolve the issue in the property sector without letting it literally go, without providing more support. And whether it's not a matter they like it or not, provide more support. Either they raise taxes and they spend them on the property sector, or they borrow more. It's very simple. Mm. Or they cut or they cut spending somewhere else, which they want. So he, in a, in a mumbling way, okay, he says there has to be more policy-induced changes in order to support. And I would say, yeah, excuse me, sir, spend more and borrow to do it. And can you do it? Yeah, you bet. With a three percent fiscal deficit to GDP, you can actually double, and nothing, nothing will happen. China is a major, it's a major domestic. So it's a major global lender. Okay, it's not Argentina. It doesn't owe money to anybody. Same thing with uh, with uh, with Japan. Therefore, they can afford both to, if they want to, to borrow money from overseas, which of course they want, uh, or of course if uh, they borrow money domestically. No mm. problem. Alex Egang's statement does seem to be putting all the onus on the PBOC to do things, doesn't it? And as Andrew says, maybe uh, they they haven't got the tools to deal with uh, what's certainly what's going on in the property sector. Yeah, I mean the. Uh... <clears throat> Articles in in the Western media about what Yi Gang had to say sort of uh, have painted it as sort of perhaps you know tacit criticism of policy. But these comments did appear in national uh, state-run, state-owned media. Mm. So you can bet for sure that they were approved by the the government. And Yi Gang uh, recently having stepped down wouldn't be putting his neck out just to to criticise the government. Um, so I think, you know, he's more so saying, oh, we have the tools to do this and we can do a few things to help the economy out. Don't worry, you know, the party is in control and, 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 and can manage this. Uh, I think that was his message. Um, but, you know, yeah, whether it's going to be adding 20 more to the list of 200 different measures that they've already <laughs> taken, um, you know, if they... Do the, the problem is they're, they're all very piecemeal, small changes. If they just said, "Well, we're going to, you know, um, ch- change the these red lines on the property industry, and we're going to um, support that very heavily," um, and uh, I think the campaign against big tech has also been very damaging. So somehow uh, demonstrate support for uh, big tech and and the capital markets in tech. I think that would help start redressing the balance. I'm not sure small little tweaks to policy would, would help. Okay. Uh, Alex, uh, you, you, you raised two very, very interesting issues, which brings me straight away into popular culture, and that is those famous fiscal economists, uh, Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day, okay, if, if in case you want to change uh, visions. And the other one is, don't worry, be happy. You know, Bob McFerrin, do you remember? Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They knew what they were talking about. And now people quietly quoting them, and they don't give them the copyright on that. There you go. <laughs> in the show, Andrew, I think you've completely changed the way we look at the PBOC and its monetary policy. <laughs> 
It will, as you say, in China now they say, oh Christ, it will never be the same again. It is not. All we need now is the Chinese dot plots. Look, before we finish, I want to switch to the UK because slowing food prices there helped drive a surprise fall in UK inflation. Consumer price inflation eased to 6.7% in August from 6.8% the previous month. Food inflation slowed to a 12-month low of 13.6% year-on-year from 14.8% in July. As a result, there's been a complete repricing of whether or not the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates later on today. They were forecasting an 80% chance of a a 25 basis point rate hike before that data. It's now down to about 50%. Um, Andrew, help me here. I'm sort of stunned that um, people can really think that somehow um, when inflation is still almost 7% and food inflation 13.6%, are people misreading this? Surely they don't think that inflation is actually coming down it's still going up and it's going up an awful lot isn't it so how on earth can the bank of england think that it doesn't have to raise rates i have i have absolutely no idea i was looking at those numbers because i, I spend now a little bit of time in in uk and uh, i this is completely anecdotological evidence you know i'm, I'm stunned by by how quickly prices particularly food prices have increased you know, it's becoming a very expensive place to eat right so yeah you know i i, I don't see the the real reasoning behind that, but then they are also clutching straws in the wind, and that is uh, because it has been so tough and it's not getting any easier. And uh, with uh, gas prices slowly creeping up, and at the same time the government announcing that we are not going to remove gas boilers, we'll allow people, you know, we're not going to make any more measures that is going to force people to things that they don't want to do in terms of spending their money. Uh, all this, I don't know, it is it is very jumbled. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm. The monetary policy does not make a huge amount of sense when in absolute terms, uh, you know, it makes your eyes water when you compare to what's happening in the States or for that matter in the European Union. And I'm sure consumers don't notice that food inflation, which was 14.8% in July, is now down to 13.6%. What they notice is they are paying a lot more than they were for food a year ago. Surely that's, that's what matters. Here is another Nobel Prize winning observation. Okay, let's say a hamburger in London, he used to call them, just making this up, 10. Now it's costing 20. Okay, then inflation goes down to zero. Guess what? The hamburger is not going to go back to 10. It will still carry on costing 20, except it's not going to increase. So prices are not going to come down. They will stop going up or they will stop going up at a high rate. So, you know, the people, the way in which people look at inflation is the classical thing. You know, my basket used to cost me 30 pounds at the supermarket. Now it cost me 60 pounds. And six months later, it's still costing me 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I said inflation has now stopped. Oh, really? Well, I noticed it, but not in terms of coming down. You know, the, this is the kind of a stickiness, not only of expectations, but of the, of the actual reality, unless you have deflation, genuine deflation. Like, for example, China had in the case of producer prices. Actually, prices came down. Not, they didn't increase more slowly or they stopped increasing. Okay, it used to cost 10 and now it costs 5. Wow, mm. great. Alex, we're going to find out later today what the Bank of England does. The rates are currently five and a quarter percent, and we'll see if they do raise them. But surely, surely the the Bank of England can't think that it's got inflation under control in the UK, can it? Yeah, I mean, those figures are still incredibly fast. And 
the surprise was that you know inflation was 6.7 percent instead of an expected seven percent i mean that's still really high and food inflation at 14 percent is is crazy you know mm-hmm. um okay down from a rec- uh, not a record high but a recent high of 19.1 percent but uh andrew is right you know people um notice that and they remember what prices were last year three years ago five years ago and uh are always hoping that prices are going to come down and you know they're not they're gonna they're rising at a slightly less crazy pace than they were but still rising at a crazy pace so it becomes a very political issue because uh you know consumers and voters really notice these impacts and it sinks into you know people's perception of how the economy is doing how everything's going i mean we've kind of don't mention the topic as much but it, a, a hefty chunk of that inflation has got to be because of brexit and the problems with getting food from the eu into britain um and you know issues with lorries going you know across the channel and uh, uh, i think this is something that um the british public's brought on itself but doesn't want to to recognize that fact um but certainly going to be very unhappy if if food prices keep skyrocketing Thank you, thank you, Alex. This is my Marie Antoinette in Britain says, well, they wanted bloody Brexit, let them eat cake. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's a big topic for another day, I think. But thank you both very much for taking us through that. It's a very interesting discussion. You heard there Alex Fu McMillan, who is a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. <laughs> I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei over in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, there's been a couple of surveys out about business optimism in China, um, foreign business optimism, that is, and they're not looking good. It's falling to a record low. Foreign businesses in China are urging authorities to improve the regulatory environment and ensure access to legitimate economic data, as a fresh survey highlights the deteriorating confidence. In a position paper released on Tuesday, the European Chamber of Commerce in China called on businesses to exercise even more caution, despite government promises of greater liberalisation to boost foreign investment and trade. Um, so what do you make of this? Uh, the, the European Chamber of Commerce is talking about business confidence at a record low. It doesn't seem to be that all the measures that the Chinese government is talking about is really helping them. It's certainly not a message that, that the Chinese government wants to hear. If we take a step back and we go back, say, one, two years ago uh, during COVID, the Chinese government started to make some effort to uh, engage with foreign businesses and to say things like, we want you here for the long term po- when, when the post-COVID period uh, uh, begins and uh, we still welcome foreign investment. But other events have kind of overtaken that message. So from the European Chamber of Commerce, uh, a survey, a, a lot of the questions and a lot of the response from members had to do with uh, the, uh, the this, this data security uh, issue that they, mm-hmm. they don't have access to the same amount of data anymore because the government has begun to restrict the types of data that is released, most notably the youth unemployment, uh, as an example, recently, uh, and also concerns about the espionage law and, and what is the line between you know legitimate 
uh, and legal uh, market information that, that companies can obtain in which in the past they had regularly obtained, whether using their own internal resources or engaging outside survey firms or business intelligence firms. And, and so now we're in this area when the espionage law came into force about uncertainty about what kind of data uh, companies could obtain. And of course, they need that data to do forecasting and to plan the level of investment that they're going to make in China. And then a, another survey that came out in, in recent days was from the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. And uh, broadly speaking, a, a lot of the responses from the members uh, was le indicated less optimism on, on Chinese economic growth and a, a, and a higher likelihood versus past surveys that their companies were going to be investing more in other locations whether it's Southeast Asia or Mexico or other places around the world. So it, both surveys are, certainly indicate the concerns of business. Now, generally, companies still think China is going to be profitable for them. So that, that's also one, one takeaway uh, from those surveys. Uh, but, but the operating environment is clearly a concern for, from the companies. And then uh, well, one more uh, thought on this topic. There, there was a very interesting news article uh, within the past few days specifically about German companies and it, it, the point of the article was that German companies really want to be in China. You know, auto companies, uh, some of the other industrial chemical type of companies, most notably BASF. And, and what they're doing to adjust to this new operating environment is they're sourcing more of their components locally. And they're, they're just kind of putting a wall around their China business uh, as long as they could extract the profits, of course. Uh, but but uh, notwithstanding geopolitical tensions or an uncertain operating environment, the solution they're uh, looking at is simply to source more of their raw materials and components locally. On that uh, American Chamber of Commerce survey that you mentioned there, this is the 2023 China Business Report, the details of that, 52% of the respondents, there were over 300 respondents, expressed uh, optimism about the business outlook. It was down three percentage points uh, last year, but that's now a record low. Um, and also their position of China's position as a top choice for investment fell to 17%, down from 27% uh, in 2021. It seems that, you know, if you look at both these surveys together, both the European survey, the American survey, they're pretty consistent with each other. It's just basically saying China is becoming a much bigger challenge now for foreign investors. Absolutely. And again, you know, the, 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 there are these concerns about uh, what kind of data we can obtain. And if we can't obtain the data, how can we invest? Um, and some of the other concerns that, that are kind of, I, I'd say, lurking beneath the surface besides the ones that are highlighted in, in, in the survey. And we, you know, we have things like business disputes that uh, suddenly uh, result in, in, in criminal charges and business executives being detained, whether that's local staff or foreign staff. So that's certainly uh, a concern as well. And then another one, again, I, I, I put it under the category of lurking beneath the surface and not necessarily part of the survey data, which is the, the, the politics back home. So whether that's uh, members of parliament from Europe or the U.S. Congress who are pointing the finger at these companies saying, hey, why are you doing business in China? You know, we have all these tensions. We have all these issues with China. Why are you making money there? Um, or just just the talking heads who are, who are criticizing them. And we see that a lot in the United States now um, where, 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 where the public class 
commenting about American companies making money in China and negatively commenting. Um, so, so there's also that element as well that, that's probably weighing on these companies. And the European Chamber of Commerce president, he raised another issue, which is clearly going to become an issue. And he's basically saying uh, that there are quite a lot of industries uh, now where there is overcapacity. And I suppose this resonates well with the EU because of the experience they had with solar panels um, a few years ago, where, where their solar panel industry was virtually destroyed. And they're now worried about the same thing happening to their electric vehicle uh, market. What's interesting is the EU's goods trade deficit with China, it's almost 400 billion euros. That's about 423 billion US dollars. That compares last, uh, compares with just 144 billion euros in 2017 so despite all these efforts you know to uh, to boost up production to invest in in china uh, the eu's trade deficit just carries on increasing this is presumably going to become already is a big issue for the eu yeah, it certainly makes it unlikely that that business uh, uh, or you know, the, the uh, comprehensive investment agreement is ever going to be signed. Mm. You know, the environment is just not good for that. Uh, you know, there hasn't been much talk about about restarting that negotiation recently. Uh, and, and that all goes back to the politics uh, that I mentioned a few minutes ago, right? The political environment is is making uh, companies that are trying to make money in China unpopular. And, and part of that is uh, you got to protect your own domestic companies, uh, whether that's small, medium enterprises or companies that are simply not in China. Uh, and you, 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 as governments, again, or as, as, as pundits, uh, they're not going to be supportive of, of a company that, you, you, that says, I'm having difficulty making money in China. You know, you're not going to get a sympathetic ear from your home country government that much mm-hmm. uh, or, or from the media anymore. The, the environment has just changed. Well, EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis is going to arrive in China tomorrow. I presume these talks are going to be pretty tough now, aren't they, after this anti-subsidy uh, inquiry was announced by the EU into, into electric vehicles. What, what can he hope to achieve? Well, he could certainly take some lessons from the trips of uh, Raimondo and Yellen and uh, uh, Blinken and uh, the climate czar John Kerry, uh, the high-profile U.S trips that occurred over the past few months, because uh, at least looking at it from the American perspective, they didn't walk away with too much from those meetings. And uh, Raimundo, you know, if we're just going to focus on the business area, um, what did she really achieve, you know, other than maybe we're going to talk some more uh, with you? Uh, so from the European perspective, uh, you know, if they want to have a good trip, then they certainly should be thinking of what they could walk away with. What kind of concrete commitment can they get from the Chinese side um, to to, uh, address some of those concerns, whether it's uh, market access in China or Chinese goods that are flooding into the EU and causing this great you know, this very large trade deficit. Um, otherwise, you know, he just went for, the, he's just going to go for the sake of going and, and people are going to point that out. So, you know, he better try and get something concrete as a takeaway from the trip. And what does China want from the EU? Well, they, they love having the, the trade surplus, so you know, they could give away a little bit, but they don't want to have their market access uh, you know, affected in a very large way. Um, so that, that's what they're going to be very careful about. You know, they, but but they, they have the negotiating power on this because they do have such a large trade deficit. So they could give away a little bit without giving a lot and still maintain their, their very large 
uh, uh, trade surplus. But I think also for the Chinese side in this meeting, what they would love is 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 a message, like a positive message to come out. You, you, EU official comes and instead of just focusing on the negative, if the EU delegation says something along the lines of, you know, we're, we're, we still want to engage with China economically, we're not talking about uh, uh, decoupling, then that's going to be a political victory for China. Mm, but they're going to say we are de-risking, aren't we? They don't like using the word decoupling, but they do like using the word de-risking, which China sees as exactly the same thing. Uh, understandably, again, so so the the vocabulary that's used is 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 going to be very important, and and uh, if the EU officials are not are not careful, then they might just inadvertently hand China a political or a messaging victory. If these um, respondents to this survey, forty percent of them saying they're now redirecting or, or planning that investment that was originally intended for China elsewhere, where is the elsewhere? Where where can this investment go instead? Where is it going instead? Oh, Southeast Asia seems to be a popular destination. It, it depends on, on 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 the sector, of course, uh, uh, and different countries have different strengths. Uh, you know. Uh, then there's there's the India question, right? Because India it, it desperately wants the manufacturing uh, to come from China into India. It's it's just a challenge to get that up and running, as as the listeners probably know. Um, and then Mexico is a popular alternative as well. If, if if you need access to the U.S. market, then then being in Mexico is is is, is an attractive alternative I mean, for proximity, obviously, and also because Mexico does have uh, the, the logistics, they have the workforce. The problem with Mexico, unfortunately for Mexico, is public safety concerns. Mm. I think U.S. investments in Mexico has hit a record high, hasn't it? So, so Mexico would seem to be the op- obvious place for U.S. companies. Uh, for for sure, and, and uh, again, proximity there. I mean, U.S. staff are just next door, and you know, could easily visit facilities in Mexico. Uh, but th- there is political tension between the United States and Mexico over border security. Uh, and frankly, the, the president of Mexico is not really hasn't really been a great friend uh, to the United States. Um, but but uh, yeah, I mean, for proximity and and uh, it, there is supply chains there, right? It does work as an alternative to. China, especially if the cost structures, you know, if the Chinese cost structure went up, you add in the cost of political risk, um, then suddenly Mexico is not such a bad place to be. Okay, Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.